0: discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast
1: billy don't be a hero sit on your parents couch be a draft dodger and listen to stick to wrestling all day hey, that second thought that would make billy my hero my name is john mcadam this is stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. I maintain that this is the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there, but don't just take my word for it. Let's ask the Ramones, how many wicked good wrestling podcasts are
0: there?
1: Okay, ignore that answer. Obviously, Joey was hitting the sauce a little early today. With now with us. Tamale is going to finish part two of our conversation about the best wrestling managers of the 1980s. I know we've kept you in suspense for seven days, so without further ado, here we go. I have a feeling that our top three are the same three guys. They probably will actually be top four then, but our our next three guys are going to be the same guys. It's just a question of what order they are in. Max, who is your number three?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think our, our top three are definitely the same three guys. And my number three is Jim Cornette, one of the all-time great talkers, one of the all-time great heat machines, understood the business, understood his role for getting his own guys over. But then when it was time to be giving and let the uh, the babyfaces get over, and for that matter, babyface managers rarely work, uh, but they can in short-term uh, situations. And him as a babyface in 89 with the Midnight Express before – They uh, they turned on the dynamic dudes. Actually worked great. He did a great job in that role. And the only reason I put him at number three versus moving him a little bit higher is I obviously you know him in the Midnight Express, one of the all time combos. Whether it's Condry and Eaton or or uh, Eaton and Lane, but I would have liked to have seen Jim have a run with a singles wrestler of some significance. You know they did the stuff with him and Dick Murdoch for a little while, which was great, but it didn't it didn't last. You know he had Hercules Hernandez. Uh, as a guy in Mid-South, he yeah, had Rip Oliver as a guy in in world-class. But if he had had a chance, I think, with tippy-top, top-of-the-heap type uh, heel, um, I think he would have done very well. And, and for me, that would have you know lifted him even higher in the rankings.
1: I had Jim Cornette at number two. And I tried rationalizing putting him in the number one spot because he is the greatest manager I've ever seen. He was great in the 90s, but he was even better in the 80s. You mentioned the thing about Dick Murdoch, which I have notes on. In early 1988, this is a, a kind of a forgotten piece of history. Jim Cornette was managing Dick Murdoch, and they were incredible together. This is the act that I'm talking about. When I was mentioning like Paul Lee and someone I don't know, Gary Albright, this was the combination that worked. It was, they were absolutely magic together. They were great television. Murdoch went from a guy who was, I don't know, seemed like, it seemed like he never really got over in JCP until Jim Cornette started managing him. And then he was over like crazy. Well, imagine my level of disappointment when Dick Murdoch goes to tour Japan he returns and he's being managed by Paul Jones, and of course Dick Murdoch was back to being uh, just another guy.
2: Yeah, oh god, the, the Cornette Murdoch stuff from early '88 was just golden. I can't believe that they would take those guys apart and for no good reason either, because it's not like they had big plans for Murdoch with Paul Jones. It just, you know it was a great duo, and it showed what Cornette and a guy you know who was sort of a top level or near the top level he act. Could be, and it it should have lasted longer. And if anybody listening to this has not seen it, it's well worth going on YouTube or going on WWE Network and seeing. I have a Jim Cornette and Dick Murdoch story here. When before we move on from them,
1: oh please go right ahead. I I have more to talk about uh, Jimmy
2: Cornette, but I'd love to hear the story. All right, so the deal is that you know this would have been in this period of time in early '88 when Cornette uh, was managing Murdoch. So he
1: hold on, Is is this a Misty Blue story?
2: This is not the Misty Blue story.
1: Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Oh no, that's all right. Uh, Safe for uh, for any kids in the room here. Uh, <laughs> you know they, uh, you know they're all traveling together because they're they're working as a as a unit. And you know Murdoch was one of those guys who, on the road, you know, was one of the biggest cheapskates of all time. You know, anything that he could do to save a dollar, he would do. So they're in Chicago and. Uh, you know they 're flying in and out of Midway airport, so their hotel is in the vicinity of midway airport and i 'm not sure what the situation around there is right now i haven 't been to Chicago in several years, but at least on one side of Midway, if not other sides there 's you know sort of a not very good neighborhood that sort of is a, right adjacent to the airport and Murdoch got them booked into a motel in this neighborhood right by the airport, and you know it 's basically one of those places where you know when you go into check in the uh clerk is behind plexiglass and they're asking you how many hours you want the room that sort of <laughs> thing so according to cornette this would have been in some interview years ago he might have put it in one of his books when Eaton opens up the door to his room that he's just been given the key to he goes in and there's a uh, a couple in there having sex right in the in the bed that has just been uh let to him by the clerk and it, well basically you know there's all manner of sleazy characters and shady types moving in and out and around the hotel. And Cornette said that he and Lane and Eaton and Murdoch all wound up in one room together, even though that hadn't been the original plan. And that, you know, outside, you know, they hear people screaming, they hear glass shattering, they hear police cars, you know, they hear loud arguments and Jim and Bobby and Stan didn't sleep a wink. And they're all basically petrified. They're terrified to be there, but they're also terrified to leave because of what's going on outside. And in the meantime, Murdoch is just laying in the bed, sleeping like the deepest, soundest sleep you've ever had. Like he is, you know, at home in his own bed without a care in the world.
1: (laughs) That sounds like Dick Murdoch to me. I I think I've told the story on Stick to Wrestling before. Forgive me if I have, but if if you haven't heard it, I was in a restaurant with a bunch of NWA wrestlers, and they're scattered all over the dining room. And Dick Murdoch, if he wanted to talk to somebody who was. 30 feet away, and this is like, you know, a real restaurant, not a bar, and there's like families and stuff, he would just yell across the room to the guy. <laughs> he, he yelled across the room to Ronnie Gar, right, hey, Ronnie, he was, he was too much, man, he was a funny guy, but Cornette, he would have been number one, but all he did was manage the Midnight Express. And the Midnight Express are phenomenal. They are my favorite tag team of all time. Jimmy and the Midnight are in the argument for my second favorite wrestler of all time behind Ric Flair, but you just, you just need to do more. And I wish he had done more, like just having a single wrestler. If I were the booker of the NWA, I know, by the way, I know Jimmy liked just managing the Midnight Express, okay? But I would have sat down with him and I would have said, look, we're underutilizing you. You could, you can yep. manage the Midnight Express, but I need you to have a single guy because if I do this with someone, you will elevate that wrestler to main event status the way he did with Dick Murdoch. I don't think Dick Murdoch could have been a world heavyweight champion with Jim Cornette, especially as his manager, especially in 1988 when he was getting a little bit older. But guy, if you had a babyface champion, he absolutely could have headlined a pay per view. Let's say they put the title on Sting at Clash of the Champions early nineteen eighty eight. They absolutely could have had a pay per view with Dick Murdoch managed by Jim Cornette as the main event.
2: Yeah, yeah, you've got Sting, you know, the handsome, young, popular babyface, and then here's Dick Murdoch, the old, ugly, fat, grumpy heel. And back then, you would wouldn't have you know fans siding with Murdoch just because his interviews were were amusing and fun, people would have really put the heat on him, really hated him. And it would have been good for, for Sting because he would have been in there with a great worker who could uh, you know help him refine his still kind of you know raw game at the time. And you know, talking about Cornette managing a top singles wrestler, I think last week we talked about the fact that Rick Rude and Paul Jones were not quite a fit. And I think we both said that you know Rude and Jim Cornette Uh, in Crockett in late 86 and into 87 would have been a much better combination.
1: I agree, and that would have worked. It would have been ideal. I mean, I think if they had... At one point, Big Bubba Rogers was over like crazy in like spring-summer of 1986, and I think if they you know hadn't pulled the plug on his push, I still don't know why they did. I mean, I'll, I'll go right out and say it. I think there is an alternative universe where Dusty Rhodes doesn't lose the NWA title in summer of 1986. He still has it at Starcade 86, and the main event of Starcade 86 is Big Bubba Rogers managed by Jim Cornette against Dusty Rhodes in the main event. And no, I'm not kidding. That's how over Bubba was, and I think he, he could have continued being that over. And just one day, they had Dusty pin him in a six man tag match that aired on, I think it aired on TBS and boom, you know, Bubba's not invincible. We can't use him like that anymore.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole deal where I think it was dusty hit him in the head with a chair and Bubba doesn't even flinch. He just uh, straightens his tie and pushes the sunglasses back up onto his nose. Back then it wasn't a cliche when that happened. It was something like, Whoa, we've never seen this before. This guy got hit by a chair and it didn't even hurt him. And, and that really made fans want to see him. And, See somebody get it? Oh, I mean, and
1: the the, sh- the chair shattered.
2: That, that's right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I remember watching that late night, and we got that show Worldwide Wrestling on midnight, and just being up late watching that, and, and being like, yeah, obviously, I even then not smart enough to the business, I knew the chair had been gimmicked, but I still thought it was fantastic, and I, I just think bubble was a missed opportunity, and oh, yeah. like I said, if Jimmy had had more than just you know. I mean, Rip Oliver, and that's it. That's like the only real singles guy he he had, and once again, underutilized. That's why I can't go with Jim Cornette. Number one, I've got to keep him at number two. I have a feeling, Max, that your number two is my number three.
2: All right. I went with Bobby Heenan at number two, and I strongly considered having him at number one, and the reason why I put him at number two, I will explain more when we get to my number one, and I, I think by process of elimination, it's pretty apparent who it was, but this was tight. It was a tight race. And, you know, number two is no shame on, on Keenan. I mean, he was a guy that, you know, was forever in the AWA managing Bachwinkle and occasionally managing others, Patera, Duncan, Lanza, Ray Stevens, some others, and one of the all-time great talkers, you know, incredible interplay on the mic with him and mean gene. Uh, I know that, you know, back in the seventies in, uh, indianapolis in the wwa he was a great foil for bruiser and he was great in the wwf as well and an incredible worker when it came to taking bumps i mean he would take the, the you know the crazy flip bumps that guys like rick flair or ray stevens adrian, Adon- adrian adonis would take he would blade for anybody sell for anybody you know i think a lot of the person i put at number one so i put heenan reluctantly at number two but you know i'm a i'm a i'm a big fan
1: I am a big fan of Bobby Heenan so much as I had him as the number one manager of the decade. And here's the thing. I think there are three guys who have a legitimate case. Cornette has a legitimate case. Ultimately, I went with Bobby Heenan over Jim Cornette because Bobby Heenan was the guy managing Nick Bockwinkle, the AWA champion. Bobby Heenan was the guy managing Andre the Giant at WrestleMania three. He was the guy managed Rick Rude it's like King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania 2 you knew Bobby was the king and because yeah and he also you've got to take those bumps into consideration my God could he bump I mean like wrestlers can't bump like that so it was a tough one but ultimately I went Bobby number one so congratulations Mr. Heenan by the way for those who have the WWE Network, check out the end of WrestleMania 3 after Hulk Hogan slams and pins Andre the Giant. What an acting performance
2: by Bobby Heenan. Oh, are you're you talking about the ride on the cart back to the locker room? Yes!
1: Yeah, yeah, that was he,
2: awesome. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, him with, like, just not, like, going crazy, not stomping or throwing one of those famous Heenan tantrums, just him with his hand on his forehead just looking down and just you know complete frustration it felt like you know what you see you know like in the final minutes of the NCAA championship monday in basketball when the team that's losing to uh, the game, you know the national championship game you know, you look at the coach or you look at some of the players and just that utter disappointment
1: it was the agony of defeat and he sold that like crazy it was one of my favorite moments in wrestling history because he did it so perfectly
2: Oh, he was absolutely uh, outstanding. And yeah, I mean, just a a great, great manager and a guy that, you know, really, I'm looking for the right word for this, but, you know, the amount of, you know, bumping that he did and the abuse that his body took in his neck, you know, he really gave a lot of himself, I guess, to the business in the name of getting not even himself over, but taking those bumps to get the baby faces over.
1: Yeah. And you know what? I say that I liked Jim Cornette. More than I liked Bobby Heenan, I, th- I think I liked your number one more than I liked Bobby Heenan. Which is not to say that I didn't like Bobby Heenan. I thought Bobby Heenan was a great manager, and I'm going to use that word again. He played his role really well.
2: Yeah, and you and you know, you mentioning him as you know the guy who managed the top guys. You know, he really was the successor to the Grand Wizard's role in the WWF in the '80s as you know the guy who had the serious contenders.
1: Yeah, I remember reading his book, he was saying, and you're right, he kind of did replace the Grand Wizard, that he would call the WWF every, like, six months, and he would say, hey, do you have a spot for me? So that's where he wanted to be, even before they went nationally, and then, if I recall correctly, he said he called in early 84, and the answer was, unlike, no, no, sorry, Bobby, we just don't have anything for you, it was... Well, nope, not right now, but there will be soon. And by summer of 1984, he was on the set of TNT. And it was one, you know, the WWF were bringing in a lot of new guys that you never thought you'd see leave their territory. I know Heenan was in Georgia for a little while in 79, but I thought he was so firmly entrenched in the AWA that it was really weird that night seeing him on TNT. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, Kind of interesting because I think part of the reason why the uh, WWF took so many AWA guys was that the styles of the production of the the programs were very similar and how they booked and so on in a lot of ways was similar. So it was easy to take guys out of one setting and and plug them into another. Obviously, they wanted to get a hold of those Midwest markets and having familiar faces was a, a way to do that. He didn't, you know, he went down to Georgia. He was planning to stay there. You know, he was told, hey, you know, you're doing great here. Your spot's secure here. Buys a house. And then uh, Oli, like, tells him, like, almost immediately, okay, you know, here's your two weeks' notice. And uh, then he went back to the AWA.
1: He didn't has told that story. Uh, he told it on Wrestling Observer Live, like, 20 years ago. I believe the story, because stuff like that goes on in the wrestling business and Oldie was the kind of guy who did stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, I was I, just thinking, I,
2: yeah, that sounds very oldie. It's all business. <laughs> you know, there's no personal factor to it. You know, the idea that you wouldn't tell the guy before he bought the house, or once you knew that he bought the house, you wouldn't say, Okay, you know, he's put down roots, we're just gonna go with this. Especially when I think a guy who you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of, but you know, I watched a little bit to kind of get an idea of who some of the guys in the middle ended up being. Yeah, you know, they brought, I think, Don Carson in after they sent Heenan away. And Don Carson who kind of reminded me a lot of Robert Fuller, who I think actually was the booker that hired him. I thought that you know he was you know fairly entertaining, but Heenan was miles better. Why you would send Heenan out and you know bring Carson in doesn't make sense to me.
1: Uh no, Don Carson, I I actually gave consideration to getting on the top ten worst. I, I didn't think much of him, but I mean he he didn't ruin anything. But specifically, I remember Bobby Heenan saying that he went to Oli. And he says, like, you know, hey, do I have a secure job here? Should I buy a house? Should I move my family here? And Oli's like, yeah, definitely. We have long-term plans for you. And as soon as he bought the house, Oli said, yeah, we're done with you.
2: Yeah, yeah, just one of those only, only in wrestling kind of deals. Yeah,
1: exactly. So with that in mind, who did you have as your number
2: one Max? I went with the mouth of the South Jimmy Hart. And like I say, it was very, very close. Almost went with Heenan as number one. And in a way, one of Heenan's great strengths actually played into me putting Jimmy Hart ahead of him. You know, you mentioned that Heenan had Andre going into WrestleMania three. He was with Bachwinkle for so many years. He had Rick Rude. You know, he had Orndorff. He had the guys that were always the top of the line guys. And granted, Jimmy Hart had a lot of top of the line guys in Memphis that he managed, but he also had a lot of guys who. They were never going to get that call from the WWF from 1984 onward or even beforehand. And somehow he had to take some of these guys like, you know, the Turk and the Iranian assassin and some of these guys that you know were really you know, not anybody of significance anywhere else. Or maybe they had been something at one time, but by the time he got them, they weren't. And somehow he made people believe in these guys as stars, as contenders to Lawler and just through you know his gift of gab. He was another guy, you know. Not he couldn't take the bumps like Heenan, but he was willing to bump. He was willing to get physically active, and he just, but through sheer energy and force of will, could get even the biggest nobodies over as big stars and threats to Lawler. And he was never treated on the same level in the WWF as he was in Memphis. But for the most part, the guys that they put with Jimmy Hart in the WWF, they got over and they played the role they were supposed to play. I'm sure we could probably come up with somebody if we thought about it and made a list, but I can't think of anybody that they gave to Jimmy Hart who two months later, they pull the plug and they downgrade the guy to jobber status or he just disappears. It seems like everybody they put him with got over and and in some cases got over more than they were supposed to.
1: Jimmy Hart was my number three and nothing against the guys who were under three, but I mean, there's a big drop in my opinion between Jimmy Hart and Lou Albano. Um, And yeah. again, Jimmy Hart, carried the Memphis promotion from the day that Jerry Lawler broke his leg until the day he left in 1985 I mean I say carried he carried the heel side I mean you were not going to be taken seriously unless you were managed by Jimmy Hart one of the really cool things I liked about Jimmy it was just a little detail like when he did interviews from his office in Memphis, where he has all the pictures of all the guys he ever managed hanging on the wall. I loved that.
2: Oh, no, it was a great touch. And, yeah, I mean, to just agree with you, when I started making the list, coming up with one, two, three was easy. Thinking about the order was a little bit hard, but it was easy. Cornette, Hart, Heenan, Heenan, Hart, Cornette, You know, however you, you want to rank them. But then after that, it's like trying to figure out four to ten and below and so on was a whole other deal. There isn't anybody below number three that you could even consider for the top three. No, I I didn't even prank you by saying, okay,
1: obviously it's Skandor Akbar at number one, but anyway. (laughs) I remember 84, you know, I'm like 18, 19 years old, so I'm out late on Friday night, and I would get up at whatever time that Georgia show was on. I think it was on at 7 in the morning, and I would set my alarm just to watch this show because Jimmy Hart was on it. He was a hurricane he was like nothing I had ever seen before obviously by this point I had never seen Memphis TV but you know he was just phenomenal in Georgia I said that Pauly Dangerously was the only reason to watch the AWA in 87 that's a bit of an overstatement they had some other good stuff going on not Georgia Jimmy Hart was the one reason to get up early and watch TV oh yeah and when he what? left and he was gone from there before he went to the WWF, he stopped doing the tapings. I was like, okay, I'm not getting up to
2: see this thing anymore. Oh yeah. When after black Saturday, you know, there was a couple of weeks and then only reopened and most of the crew stuck with him. So he still had some, some big guys, you know, he had DiBiase still for a while, he had Jake Roberts for a while. And once those guys took off, uh, you mentioned this, I think last week about the TV exposure that you could get from having that, you know, 6:05 PM Eastern Saturday night time slot. You, know, you didn't have the the next big star come in to replace them. So there was absolutely nothing happened. And Oli and Thunderbolt Patterson were the two top baby faces. You know, Tommy Rich was around in a much, much diminished state from what he had been mm-hmm. even a year earlier, let alone two or three years earlier. And Jimmy Hart just with all that energy, with all that, all that motion, just you know, he managed to somehow, you know, spin straw into gold, and and they had a, a a great thing going there with him. And like I said, pretty much the only reason to watch.
1: Yeah, and Thunderbolt Patterson, at least in the, in the beginning, was so spectacularly bad that he was worth getting up out of bed for. But that that act got old. Well, I'll tell you something that I heard a long time ago from a pretty strong source. Jimmy Hart obviously did not have the role in the WWF that he did in Memphis. He was never going to have that with Bobby Heenan around. And I specifically heard that Bobby Heenan just did what he needed to do to make sure that Jimmy Hart didn't get too over and was never in a position to overshadow Bobby Heenan. As a matter of fact, you might notice when the WWF figured out what it was going to do with King Kong Bundy, he magically, in a trade, wound up going from Jimmy Hart to Bobby Heenan.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a good point about the uh, yeah, Heenan trying to protect the spot. I never had heard that or, or even thought about it. And now that you mention it, it seems so. Uh, it seems so apparent because, you know, you have Bundy. Like, obviously, you could see just from his size and his mobility and his look that this is somebody that Hulk and Andre are going to be facing in the near future. And I think in the other direction of the trade was Adrian Adonis, who. You know, after the deal with him and Murdoch was done, they had, you know, they hadn't gone to the adorable Adrian yet. I don't think they had any idea what to do with him or any plans about doing anything with him. And yeah, missing link. Yeah, honestly, God, I would have to look it up, And I want to say missing link made it was whole, missing link. A, he made like one TV appearance with Hart after the trade before he was either fired or quit. So the whole thing was just a wash. At oh, least no. from the Hart side. Oh, I, I
1: mean, at the time, I was, you know, I, I realized the idea. You know that these two sat down and made a trade was preposterous, but that looked like a typical five dollar bill for two quarters trade.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the that's the trade in fantasy football where everybody immediately complains to the commissioner that he's got to <laughs> overrule it that this is not a fair deal. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, and you know Jimmy Hart, he was good in the WWF, but i listen. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen Jimmy Hart in Memphis, but for the handful of you that may not have, I mean. Old Memphis is all over YouTube. Seek it out.
2: He was Absolutely. phenomenal. He was great. And like you said, he really was the, the the backbone there because the heels came and went, but Hart stayed. And somehow he managed to stay there all those years and it never got old. You know, you no. never nobody ever got bored with him. It never seemed like it was old hat. He was always, he was always over. And therefore the guys that he managed some more than others, but everybody was over that, that was under underneath him. And, you know, I remember he did a, a local Twin Cities radio appearance. I think this is where I heard this. I think it was Kim calling into one of the stations ahead of WCW coming in just to you know, build up for the, for the card at Target Center. And, you know, he was out of character. You know, he did a lot to hype the show, but it wasn't like the deal he did later where he would be in character and he would ch- challenge the local DJ and they would have a, a match not on TV at the Nitro taping. This was just him, Jimmy Hart just talking, and he mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons why he had such a long run in the WWF, you know, he got there in early 85, and in spring of 93, he's still there. And, you know, maybe if things hadn't fallen out with Hogan in the WWF, he might have stayed longer, especially if he had stayed on the heel side. And he just mentioned that he always did what he had to do to be a team player and be a guy that could be reliable. You know, anybody that they put with him, he would always do what he had to do to, to get them over and try to make it work. You know, He mentioned that he'd always keep himself neatly groomed, You know, make sure that all his suits were, were neatly pressed and that he always looked the part. And so they had the confidence in him to say, Jimmy, we're going to put this guy with you. Do what you can to, to get him over. Uh, I agree.
1: And one last thought on Jimmy Hart. Can we think of an odder manager-wrestler combination than Jimmy Hart and Terry Funk? I'm going to put that question up on our Facebook page because I cannot, off the top of my head, think of a weirder combination.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting because, like, if you are bringing Terry Funk into the WWF and you're going to give him a, a heel manager, the guy that you probably would have put him with, just because that's who this. If you if you if Terry Funk came to the WWF to do something with Backlund in '79, you would have put him with Albano. And every time. And and now Albano a babyface, and you've got to do something else with him. And definitely not Heenan family material. doesn't really feel like a blassy guy, you know, valiant. I don't know. It's just like they had nobody else. And I guess Hart and Funk had worked together in, in Memphis. So they, they went with it, but yeah, it's not a clean fit, but you know what it made for some really good television,
1: a little bit off topic. I know that Terry Funk was supposed to have a run in the WWF in 1980. I'm not sure what happened. I have his book. I should just look it up, but, uh, he was supposed to have a run. I think he would have gotten over like crazy, and there's no question in my mind. Despite being a former NWA champion, which you would think might put him with the Grand Wizard, he was a Lou Albano guy all the way.
2: Yeah, yeah. Lou had all the sort of uncouth ruffians, kind of the the guys that, you know, weren't like monster heels. But, you know, you'd have to think to yourself, could you take this person to a fine restaurant and have him behave himself? You know, it's like, <laughs> Greg Valentine, Yes. Terry Funk, no. So, therefore, you got to <laughs> put him with the guy with the Hawaiian shirts and the rubber bands.
1: There you go. So, we've given you the top 10 managers, maybe a little bonus content coming up here. Two guys that didn't make my top 10 or my bottom 10 that I wanted to talk a little bit about. I always thought Diamond Dallas Page, as a manager in the AWA and Florida, was an interesting cat. And I say this because I think we all knew a guy like this. I knew a couple of guys like this. DDP, he reminds me of the guy who drives a five-year-old Trans Am. He's 25. He still lives with his parents. If you needed concert tickets, he's your guy. He was kind of, uh, what? I'm not saying this about Paige, but I'm saying this about the guy he portrayed, kind of a low-level drug dealer and was always hitting on girls. And you know whether or not they were, were reciprocated, he didn't care. He was just like, ah, I'm on to the next one. And that's what DDP reminded me of in Florida and the AWA. What did you think of DDP?
2: I thought he was a guy that had a lot of potential and it never, he never quite refined it as a manager. So it's always interesting to me that, you know, he becomes a wrestler and then becomes this phenomenal babyface in in WCW. You know, sometimes, like you said, your description of, of the character he was playing is pretty much spot on. I mean, just a perfect example Kind of like a, a sleazy kind of guy, but a sleazy kind of guy that, you know, you know of and that every town, every neighborhood, every school has got somebody like this guy. Oh, yeah. But, you know, he kind of did relied a little bit too much on the on the schtick sometimes on the cliches. And this is nothing against him because he can't help it sometimes. But he was managing bad company and he was way bigger than Tanaka and actually a little bigger than Diamond as well. So it's kind of odd that you've got the manager out there who's bigger than the guys he's managing normally, you know, you you weren't used to that dynamic and, you know, he had stayed as a manager longer, had a a chance with some more top talent. And granted there was no Eddie Graham and Dusty Rhodes combo anymore, but yeah, if he had been with somebody who could have helped him refine it, I think he could have been, uh, you know, a much better better manager than he turned out to be because there was, you know, definitely something there.
1: In my notes, too tall, those exact words. And yeah, he was a head taller than Pat Tanaka, who in fairness was, was very small. But I mean, DDP was, he was too big to be a manager. And I give him credit. I mean, in his mid thirties, he decides to, you know, learn how to work. He get, get in better shape and he became a star, a nitro.
2: Yeah. His rise from being mid card dirt back heel to being for a little while there, you know, Sting was up in the rafters. So the guys who were actually wrestling in the first part of 97, really much of the year, he might've been the most over of all of them just, an inconceivable rise you would never have imagined if, you know, you told somebody in November of nineteen ninety six that a year from now, Diamond Dallas Page is going to be arguably the most overactive baby face in the promotion. Nobody would have ever bought it. Yeah. And I like I said, I give the guy credit for
1: trying, but I mean or, or, or for trying, for succeeding, for working really yeah. <laughs> hard and succeeding. But I always got a kick out of him is that yeah, as in that role in the nineteen eighties, the guy with the car and the $400 leather jacket with the guns and roses shirt underneath it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, him hitting on all the girls, whether they wanted to be hit on or not. And I always get the picture, you know, based I'm getting the picture right now. I shouldn't say always, I just got it in my head, but you know, you mentioned, you know, him hitting on all the girls. I see him as, you know, the 25 year old guy who's trying to pick up the, the gals who are like juniors and seniors in high school that, you know, it's a little creepy that he's, that he's hitting on them. And it would be even creepier if they went for it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh, no, he has a car, Daddy. Anyway, he has a car and a job. One other guy I'd like to mention is Downtown Bruno. Any thoughts on Downtown Bruno?
2: On my list, next to Downtown Bruno's name, I wrote Major Underachiever because when he first came on the scene in Memphis in 86, you'd have, and into early 87, you'd have thought that, you know, this was the second coming of Jimmy Hart. You know, you wouldn't. Necessarily, he wouldn't. He wasn't as talented as Jimmy Hart, and the success wouldn't have been as big. In part because at that point, wrestling had changed, and nobody was going to have that kind of success in the territories. But here is this, you know, little five foot three, looks like he weighs hundred pounds, soaking wet wimp who's got this big booming voice coming out of him that does not match the body. He's got just this kind of weaselly, sleazy kind of look about him. Pretty decent talker, but it's kind of like the. In basketball terms, here I'll put it in football terms. He's the rookie running back who gets about 700 yards and five touchdowns. And you think we just get this guy more carries? He's going to be a 1,400-yard, 20-touchdown guy, and he just never developed. You know, he just kind of stopped and stood in place, and then he actually regressed, and eventually wasn't a manager anymore because you know he just wasn't working. Yeah,
1: the first time I saw Bruno, I loved him. I thought he was great. And as time went on, I liked him less and less. He he was good. I, I, you know, he was closer to my top 10 than my bottom 10, but he was kind of a one trick pony. Like if you saw him once, you didn't need to see him again. He was like an episode of Batman. Same thing every time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like he had that pretty good second half of 86, first part of 87. And then middle of 87 you know he becomes kind of a, a toady for uh brick house brown with that yep. horrible stable that he had and then he's kind of like the toady mascot for robert fuller in the stud Stable the next year and part of the thing that worked with downtown bruno is that he's this small guy with the big mouth who's got all these big behemoths around him protecting him and eventually either they're going to get taken out or they're going to slip and he or he's going to slip and he's going to be right in the baby faces path and he's going to finally get his And without him in that lead role as him, just somebody's sidekick, it didn't work. And he never got it back after that. And WWF brought him in as Harvey Whippleman, And I don't know what it was because he had shown such potential a few years earlier, but it just nothing clicked there with him.
1: No. And, you know, I'll I'll, my favorite Bruno story. It's not even a story. It's something that happened on TV. They did the thing where Bruno got his face put in a cake. It felt like such a shoot Lance Russell. Kind of shakes his head. Oh, I'm not touching that cake after Bruno's been in there.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he looked like a guy that, like, bathing was a once a week kind of thing. You know, he always had that oily, greasy hair and that complexion and everything. And yeah, he just looked disgusting. I have a
1: picture of Bruno and I where he got up early in the morning to be at the the UAWF convention in Memphis. And yeah, that was, that whole thing was kind of a shoot. And that concludes our segment with Max Levy, a.k.a. Tamale On, the 10 best wrestling managers of the 80s. And now I I finally have something, I finally have the time to do something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and that is bring on our fine producer. By day, he is the producer of Stick to Wrestling and other Arcadian Vanguard podcasts, but by night, he is an incredibly knowledgeable wrestling fan. Lightning Lou Kippelman, thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling and being on this side of the camera, per se, for the first time.
0: Well, uh, if I knew that, I, I would have combed my hair. But yes, <laughs> good to be here.
1: Glad to have you here. Now, we have been talking for the past uh, one, about 100 minutes on Stick to Wrestling on the best wrestling managers ever. But before that, I'm going to put you on the spot, Lou. Yeah. Who was the worst, the worst wrestling manager of the <laughs> 80s, in your opinion?
0: Well, uh, I got to say, it's, yeah, Paul Jones. Yeah. Number one and done. He, <laughs> good Lord. Yeah. He, he is just, of course, me being uh, from San Francisco and not really getting my first taste of wrestling until the AWA in 1984. I, you know, first saw Paul Jones when Jim Crockett started showing worldwide wrestling in San Francisco in 86. And I saw him managing Baron von Raschke. And I'm like, who's this guy in the $3 tux? And why can't he speak very well? And what's his deal? So of course, I, me having no idea about the first 20 some odd years of his career and him holding it down in Mid-Atlantic and Texas and Oklahoma and the uh, Portland Territory, uh, Vancouver, early in his career. You know, I had no knowledge base for that, and I just saw this, like, muttering, stuttering goof with the writing crop and whatever. And then going back and seeing stuff on YouTube from uh, the earlier part of his managing career, around 83, 84 when he, I don't know if he came up with it or one of the uh, booking junta of uh, Dory Funk, Gary Hart, Ernie Ladd, or Wahoo McDaniel, the idea that he had a registry. And he kept referring to it. The registry. It was a really, really brown shoe wearing, uh, square guys version of Chris Jericho's The List. Yeah. And way before its time. So it's like, Dusty Rhodes, you're on the registry. (laughs) Exotic Adrian Street, you're on the registry. And it's like, what, are you getting married? (laughs) What the hell is this registry deal? So I've just never found him to be a credible or a threatening sort of manager like uh, some of the great ones of the 80s. I found him to be more kind of, and managers, I understand, uh provide some levity at certain points, and in turn, that cycles and feeds into getting a lot of heat on a baby face and coming back and, get, you know, the baby face getting their comeuppance. But old Puddin' Head just always seemed to be a, a pompous buffoon to me.
1: Yeah, and what what kind of, I mean, I thought Jones was definitely a candidate based on I mean, longevity is important. And Paul Jones was on WTBS every single week for four and a half years when this show started in 1985 until the time he got let go, I want to say January 1989, and then throw in NWA Pro Wrestling, throw in NWA Worldwide, throw in the Saturday and Sunday shows. I mean, there was a lot of bad Paul Jones out there.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, a veritable a smorgasbord of uh, stinky promos for Mr. Jones.
1: And what throws me is when he was an active, I'm not going to say he was, you know, Dusty Rhodes or superstar Billy Graham on this stick, but he he was fine.
0: Yeah, he seemed like, and I'm going through, following one of arcadian and Vanguard's other uh, great podcasts, Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, What Up, Mike and Roman, I'm hearing Paul Jones coming back into mid Atlantic after uh, spending some time trying to revive the rapidly decaying uh, McGurk McGurk. Yeah. Leroy McGurk territory with uh, his old pal, George Scott. And so he comes back in and he's the, you know, he's the, the gruff take no BS baby face. It'll be interesting to see him uh, flip again against, I want to say Jack Briscoe back to a, a, a heel character first getting uh, managed by Oliver Humperdinck and then eventually retiring for the most part from active competition. And of course, he had all sorts of credibility in the Mid-Atlantic area. So, yeah, it's interesting to see him through that prism and then to see what he became in short order after that. Yeah, my understanding is he had to
1: retire from a bad back. He did turn heel again against Jack Briscoe and Jay Youngblood had a really, I thought it was a really good sidebar. Like he was doing an interview and he mentioned Paul Jones. He's like, you know, Paul Jones, you know, you turned against us once and we took you back. We're never taking you back this time. I thought that that added a really nice touch to things.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it did. And certainly, uh, boy, it it certainly shows the difference between treating your fans with respect and uh, assuming that they have an attention span <laughs> and an attention span and the ability to recall even recent past events as opposed to the big show Turn of the Week or whatever.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean, I've said this before on the show. I mean my I saw my first turn after being a fan for almost three years and I'm like, you know in the 90s there was a turn on every show you know, there'd be more turns on Monday night than there were of my first three years as a wrestling fan.
0: Yeah, I tell you, I think the the first turn I saw on television, I think it's among like the gold standard of babyface turns of the 1980s was the footage of the Battle Royal in St. Paul, Minnesota in summer of 84, when Jerry Blackwell cast off the shackles of uh, the Sheik's army and then promptly got beaten into a fine pace by Abdullah the Butcher, Sheik Adnan, and King Kong Brody, and then, of course, having Dusty there to be the hype man to get him up back on his feet. That was a fairly electric moment. Certainly, when you conserve your moments for turning and have them mean something, that's really everything in wrestling.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they... So much has changed. I mean, my understanding is that the AWA built up that turn for literally three or four years, and they were banking on Blackwell versus Ken Patera and Adnan being just, you know, this incredible feud. And sometimes you can book things too far into the future. Like, you don't know what the AWA is going to be like in three years.
0: That's true. And I guess that they executed a... uh... A sort of turn, I think, in the in the sort of converse fashion in St. Louis, from some of the footage I've seen on YouTube. In that, I guess there was a breakup with Patera and Blackwell in St. Louis, and Blackwell remained heel, and then Patera was vowing to come after him. So I don't know. Yeah, it would have been interesting to have a big guy versus a really strong guy angle in the AWA, but yeah i know that jerry blackwell got brought in as farmer blackwell in his early time there in the awa uh 79 80 and then shortly i guess fern figured out that he wasn't getting over as a baby face and so here comes the crusher who's not reggie lasowski so
1: yeah the awa was big on that you couldn't call Bruiser Brody, you know, you had to call him King Kong Brody because of Mm -hmm. Dick the Bruiser, long after Dick the Bruiser was gone. I I never thought that made any sense. Lou, I'll tell you what. Let's hear your number three best manager of the 1980s.
0: Number three best manager. Well, yeah, I'm going to say the old mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, with, of course, me not having adequate access to the Memphis years. But seeing him in the WWF as a pipsqueak with the megaphone, the constant irritant to so many babyfaces in the WWF, he was, you know, really good. He was good in his role as far as how far you could go as a heel manager in the 1980s. I mean, you're, you know, it's not going to be totally dastardly because, you know, they want to keep the families watching. Yep but you know he was good and he could pop in you know toss up the megaphone or have hulk hogan hit jimmy hart with a honky's guitar or whatever and he was i think he fulfilled his role pretty admirably
1: no i was i was always a big jimmy hart fan i remember the first time he brought that megaphone out in the wwf i could not stop laughing and even as a non smart fan, I'm like, okay, how you know, look at my watch, when does the megaphone get involved in one of these matches? And sure enough, that became a foreign object of choice.
0: Yeah. I think as far as managerial gimmicks go, you know, whoever came up with that really hit it out of the park. Yeah.
1: And then they picked the right guy for it, in my opinion. Jimmy Hart was was great with that megaphone. On to your number two selection of top managers of the 1980s, Lou.
0: It would have to be our man, James E., Jim Cornette. He is somebody who, the first time I saw him, of course, would have been by Worldwide Wrestling. And see this guy with the the loud suits and the dorky glasses and the tennis racket talking a mile a minute with cutting witticisms about every other second or so. He came at me, the unassuming uh, guy from California, watching this. He was like an F5 tornado or whatever. He was, along with Bobby Heenan, he was somebody who could simultaneously have you laughing your ass off and then wanting to wring his neck. I'd take, for example, the The deplorable beatdown of Dusty Rhodes and Baby Doll, as an example to where Dusty was, of course, coming down in all his glory to ringside when cornet calls him out, and he had the cowboy hat on, and and Jim, of course, lifts a line from Caddyshack. It says, "Nice hat, Dusty. You get a free bowl of soup with that." Yes. And then you know, not more than probably thirty seconds later, the Midnight Express is holding Baby Doll and Jim is hitting her with the handle end of the racket. And it's like, oh, my God, did that just happen? What a what a dick. So I would say so really, really dynamic in his role, especially with the Midnight Express.
1: I mean, Jim, I remember that angle, and then Jim puts the cherry on the dick Sunday by coming out the next week and saying that. Because of the injuries, uh, Baby Doll sustained at the hands of the Midnight Express, she won't be able to run to the Kentucky Derby this weekend. <laughs> if I had to make a list of some <laughs> of the best lines Jim came out with, that might be near the top. The first guy that came to mind when you were talking about Jimmy Hart being a little bit watered down in the WWF and not being as as nefarious was Jim Cornette because it's on the network. If you watch his stuff. For Mid South Wrestling. I mean, he was funny in the NWA. He was funny in Mid South too, but he was a lot more diabolical.
0: Yeah. And I could, I could see that from the few clips that I have seen from WWE's Mid South Blu ray disc, which I have. And also there's a good amount of Mid South up on YouTube as well as on the network, of course. It's interesting seeing Jim's kind of metamorphosis from the beginning where he's just the hapless mommy's boy schmuck in Memphis to seeing him building confidence and developing a character. The Jim Cornette who gets pantsed on live Memphis TV by Terry Funk is uh, far different than the Jim Cornette in Mid-South who comes at Bill Watts with a blackjack and lets him have it.
1: Oh, yeah, that was one of the greatest sequences in, in in wrestling history when Jim, you know, goes from like drowning in that cake and you know getting slapped by Bill Watts, and then the next week he and the Midnight Express are seriously out for revenge. Well, that leaves little to the imagination as far as who your number one is, Lou.
0: This is true. And it's our, our man, the dearly departed uh Raymond Lewis Heenan, who started in Indianapolis and, uh, according to Heenan, Dick the Bruiser just called him Bobby when he hired him as a manager for the WWA's version of the Assassins. And Heenan, according to his book, never seemed to know why he was christened Bobby by the Bruiser. A lot of people think that it was mainly due to the, the influence of the manager Bobby Davis up in the Northeast in the sixties, but coming from there. And becoming a uh, comic foil for Dick the Bruiser in some ways. And then I first saw him in the AWA in 84. And I don't know, he, because when I started watching around June of 84, he wasn't there. And Bach Wiggle was saying, Heenan's coming back soon, this and this and that. And then he comes back and he was hilarious on the stick. And then between that and then him instigating certain events, like I recall the, uh, the beatdown of the fabulous ones coming in on their interview time and the fabs pushing him back against the backdrop of the set. And then here come Bachwinkle and Mr. Saito. They get juice on Stan Lane with the samurai helmet and then they stuff pile drive, uh, Steve Kern on the floor as like, Oh my God, that's insane. And then I recall the last televised moments of Bobby Heenan in the AWA when he was in the corner of Harley race, when Harley was in for a very brief spell going against the young lion Kurt Hennig and then Heenan coming in and blasting Kurt Hennig in the face and busting him open. And then of course the axe comes in and clears house. And then of course. We come in with the Verngana Deus Ex Machina of uh, Wally Carbo saying, This is reprehensible. Bobby Heenan is suspended for life. When, of course, the truth is that Vince <laughs> plucked him like the cherry that he was and had him lead the way for the WWF in the 80s, both as a really tremendous heel manager with the family and also as. Gorilla Monsoon's classic comic foil.
1: Yeah, he played both roles really well. I, you know, always admired Heenan through the magazines. But the first time I ever saw him was in 84 when he all of a sudden appeared on the TNT show. And mm. it was, it was absolutely, you know, I knew things were changing and changing fast.
0: Yeah, definitely. And at the same time, in 84, when I found the AWA, I also found the WWF, which was on another independent station in San Francisco, and seeing the managers there and seeing Heenan, I'm like, hmm, when Heenan got suspended or storyline suspended by Wally Carbo, I thought, oh, man, I really hope he lands in the WWF. (laughs) (laughs) So, yep, uh, he did, and resoundingly.
1: Uh, I I never knew the suspended for life story, but. Well, Lou, like I said, I have been looking forward to doing this. This will not be your last appearance uh, again in front of the camera on stick to wrestling.
0: Well, thank you uh, for the opportunity. I feel like my own takes are kind of meager compared to what you and Max were hashing out. But, yeah, it's been fun.
1: All right. Well, I I enjoy it as much as you do. And thank you again. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, not only our guest. And thank you again, uh, Max Levy, for appearing on our show, three shows in a row. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. We'll see you next week.
0: And that concludes our podcast day. <laughs>